Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. All right, let's do it. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. This season is sponsored by Simplify ETFs. Simplify seeks to help you modernize your portfolio with its innovative set of options-based strategies. Full disclosure, prior to Simplify sponsoring the season, we had incorporated some of Simplify's ETFs into our ETF model mandates here at Newfound. If you're interested in reading a brief case study about why and how, visit simplify.us slash flirting with models. And stick around after the episode for an ongoing conversation about markets and convexity with the convexity maven himself, Simplify's own Harley Bassman. In this episode, I speak with Sam Tribuco from Alameda Research. Alameda manages over $100 million in digital assets and trades between $600 million and $1.5 billion per day. We begin our conversation with a discussion around the features that distinguish crypto markets from traditional markets. What becomes a recurring theme in the conversation is how decentralization and fragmentation present both an opportunity and a challenge. Sam provides some color into the easiest and hardest alpha he's earned, including exploiting a spot arbitrage with a US dollar, Bitcoin, and Japanese yen triangle trade. But not all trades are that complicated. Sometimes it's just buying Dogecoin when Elon Musk tweets about it. We spend the back half of the conversation discussing operational issues such as managing collateral, block time versus clock time, transaction costs, exchange risk, and regulatory risk. For a highly systematic team, Alameda spends a good deal of time trying to qualitatively judge where the juice is worth the squeeze. I found this chat to be incredibly insightful into the world of crypto trading, and I hope you do too. Please enjoy my conversation with Sam Tribuco. Sam, welcome to the show. Excited to have you here. First season, I'm dipping my toe into the crypto space, and you were highly recommended from everyone I was asking about who I should talk to. So I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. Let's just start with your background. How in the world did you come to get into this space? And maybe you can touch a little bit on what you're doing living in Hong Kong right now. Uh, yeah, so in terms of my background, it's uh, decently standard in terms of uh, like quantitative trading people, I think. As a kid, I was really good at math. I did a lot of math competitions growing up, much like math camps and stuff. Ended up going to college, studying math and computer science. And my junior summer, 
I did a trading internship at uh, SIG or Susquehanna in the US. And I really liked that. I also was really into like playing strategic games my whole life. And SIG uses poker as a teaching thing, which I was very attracted to. And I ended up really liking uh, the internship. I went back full time after graduation. I was trading uh, on their uh, bond ETF desk, as well as their sports betting desk for a few months. Uh, in like 2017, I ended up leaving uh, for a few months. Uh, I'd been sort of noticing some things uh, about uh, crypto trading in just in, like my personal, like I was like trading in my PA and saw some like really crazy looking things in crypto and spent a little time digging into it, decided it, like it looked like it just couldn't be real uh, in such a liquid market it really was and sort of it had to be what I was doing full time after I realized that. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like what were some of the things you were seeing? Yeah, so I like back in like 2017, uh, this is a little less true today. I uh, still not like totally false, uh, but it was really true back then. Like there were these trades you could do by just like buying spot Bitcoins on one US exchange, sending it to another US exchange and selling it. And there'd be like a persistent like percent premium between these two exchanges for like fairly real amounts of money. This is like the kind of thing that like coming back from a traditional finance background is just like crazy to see. And I kind of figured it was like a data problem on my end and not like a real trade that you could do. But when I did try it, it was a real trade you could do. <laughs> and yeah, like just devoting like a little bit of time to creating like basic infrastructure and like trading just in my PA with the money I had uh, was just like too good to not do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's what I'm doing now. I did it like in my PA for a while, then moved to San Francisco because I wanted to anyway, which is where Alameda Research was. And then Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, who's the CEO, I had gone to a math camp with during high school. So I knew him. I knew he was doing this, uh, got to talking to him at some point, and uh, yeah, I ended up joining. I've uh, been here for a few years now. We moved to Hong Kong, or like the team sort of slowly trickled to Hong Kong. Now almost everyone's here, which like ultimately has been quite nice just because uh, Hong Kong did a better job early on of COVID handling than the US. So like bars are open right now, <laughs> which is kind of cool. But yeah, so I've been in Hong Kong for a year now or so, and yeah, just trading most of my time. But <laughs> So maybe we can level set the conversation with a little bit of a discussion around what you see as being the biggest differentiating factors between crypto and traditional markets. Well, there are like some similarities. Uh, yeah, there's a ton of differences. Some of them are like sort of jump out at you. Like the volatility in the crypto markets uh, is kind of insane. The stock market had, I don't know, like let, let's just even looking at like March 12th of last year, like the stock market obviously had like its most volatile day in quite a while, uh, like falling I don't remember the exact numbers, like let's say 20%. On that same day, crypto fell like 50 or 60%, depending on what coin you're talking about. And Bitcoin, which is like the hallmark product of crypto, is up like 200% since October 2020 right now, like from then till now. That's just like sort of not the kind of thing that's supposed to happen in like a, for like the, like the biggest product in a space. So yeah, like the volatility is obviously like one big thing that like causes the crypto markets to be different. And there's like a few reasons that, that are like somewhat more fundamental that you can point to uh, that like contribute to that and also like a bit orthogonal. The lack of centralization is a big thing. So like in the traditional markets, like let's say that I am like a trading firm uh, and I like want to be trading like all the products with a given underlying, like with Tesla as an underlying, for instance. Mostly all I have to do is like set up, uh, like get my system set up, uh, give a bunch of like money to my prime brokerage firm and there's a few other things I'm abstracting away, but basically I'm done. And I can sort of like, when I try and buy Tesla, like I'm really looking at what is the best price on all the 15 possible exchanges. And I place my bid and I get to buy on the best one. 
Uh, in crypto, there's no centralization. Like let's say there's like 20 important exchanges. In order to trade on all of them, uh, you have to be set up on all of them. You have to ha be taking in their data. You have to ha be set up with their systems. You have to have collateral on all of them. And all of their APIs are different. All their rules are different. And all their products even, like even if they're like identical to some extent, they are kind of just different because their order books are different. They're trading at different prices. And yeah, like it's a much more like complex system uh, to be trying to think about when I like what, so when I want to buy Bitcoin, if I haven't like done a ton of work uh, to make my systems understand like where is the best place to buy Bitcoin, uh, then like I might have to actually look at all 20 exchanges and think about like, oh, like, yeah, this one looks like it's the cheapest, but also withdrawals take four days to process from it. So like, do I actually want to buy it here? And if it's a futures product, like one of them might look the cheapest, but maybe its index is different. And yeah, so there's all these like idiosyncratic things that are caused by the lack of centralization in crypto that like people in traditional finance just like mostly don't have to think about uh, as long as like as long as it's not like something really weird. And yeah, like I, I'd say that like that's the core of the differences is all these these idiosyncrasies. Uh, there's like, there's a ton of different specific things I could talk about both uh, in terms of like the way products are weird, or the way exchanges are weird, which I think we'll probably talk about more later. Uh, but yeah, I think this is like the core of the difference. Well. Talking about products, as I've sort of gotten into this space and poked around a little bit, one of the more esoteric products that is incredibly popular in the crypto space is this idea of a perpetual swap. And this perpetual swap actually, it turns out, has far more volume than spot itself. Can you explain how this contract works and what sort of the implications are for the crypto markets as a whole? and how they function, given that actually most of the volume happens in this contract? Yeah, so the perpetual swap is sort of a variance on futures, which uh, I think BitMEX were the first ones to uh, use it in crypto. They certainly were the ones who popularized it. BitMEX is an exchange uh, for reference. So the, basically the way it works is it's kind of like an auto-rolling future. Like, let's talk about the Bitcoin one. So the Bitcoin perpetual swap on, uh, let's talk about the BitMEX one just as an example has an index of like the three biggest spot exchanges, like Bitcoin versus USD spot exchanges. And it's tracking that, like snapshotting it like every second, say. And it's also tracking its own price. And uh, every eight hours, the way that uh, it's actually like kept in line is, so they track the, like the TWAP of over the eight hour period of both the index and the futures product. If it's been trading uh, rich uh, to its index, then if you are long the perpetual swap, you have to pay everyone who's short uh, whatever the difference was. So if it was on average at like $10 rich uh, during the period, then if you're long at the eight hour snapshot mark, uh, you pay $10 to someone who is short. Yeah, this is the mechanism by which it's kept in line. Like, so if it got like super, super rich, like everyone who's long would have to pay and everyone who's short would get to, like would get paid, which like sort of tends to get it to trade in line with spot. And yeah, so this like this product uh, for a while was like the BitMEX perpetual swap in specific was the most liquid product by like a ton. Now the BitMEX one is has a bit less volume, but the Binance product, which is basically the same, again, is the most liquid Bitcoin product in the world. And uh, yeah, this has a few implications. So most of the spot exchanges uh, don't offer like a ton of leverage to traders, mostly because like it's sort of impractical for them to uh, like getting letting people get like 100x levered long like spot has like some delivery issues, which uh, futures do not have. And like both BitMEX and Binance and pretty much all the major, uh, the major futures platforms like do offer 100x leverage uh, to their customers. And it's not just like a fun advertising thing that no one actually uses, like people use this. And this is actually like one of the biggest driving forces behind the volatility in crypto uh, is this 100x leverage. Because 
it sort of lets people put on like these giant positions that they have no real business putting on and wouldn't be able to put on uh, in a in, like in a space that didn't have this. And like traditional finance lacks a mechanism like this, for instance, uh, at least like on such a wide like a, such a widespread one. And like because of the way uh, the way it works, like let's say I put on a hundred x long position uh, in Bitcoin, like a long position, and then Bitcoin goes down a percent, which like Bitcoin does all the time, as we discussed, it's super volatile. My position is going to get liquidated, and liquidations are rampant in crypto as a result of uh, the high leverage and how popular these swaps are. It creates a ton of momentum where it wouldn't otherwise exist. Like when Bitcoin goes down five percent, a bunch of liquidations happen, and then it goes down another five percent, and then a bunch more liquidations happen, and then like this sort of like cascades. Yeah. So if you've ever seen Bitcoin, uh, like just have these like giant periods where it's going up a ton, then down a ton, then up a ton, etc. It's because of this. It's actually a fairly cool thing once you understand it because it looks. Like Bitcoin, like sort of looks like it's like this crazy thing, and it, like it actually is. Uh, but there's like a few uh, key reasons that it's happening, and yeah, these swaps are one of them. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about how you think about trading the markets, and I was hoping maybe you could start by talking about maybe categorizing the different types of trades you look to exploit, and maybe how much of your book is dedicated to each of those trades. And I'll add in there if you can remember it, even maybe what an, a practical example of that trade looks like. Yeah, so uh, Alameda uh, is, so one of the big things that Alameda does is market making. So this is sort of our more boring activities on some level. Like I mentioned before, there's like 20 important exchanges or something like that. Like there's maybe 100 important coins, like they don't all have all of them and there aren't futures on all of them. There's futures on a bunch of them. And Alameda is trading like basically every important product in the world on every important exchange. And one thing that we're doing as a result is uh, market making on all of them. So what that means is that we're like constantly 24-7 putting out bids and offers uh, like decently tight, depending on like how liquid the book is or whatever on all these products. And sometimes we have like a business reason for doing this, uh, but there's also like important trading reasons for it. So I mentioned that like some of the exchanges like, have like weird data setups or whatever. Some of them, the fastest way you can know that the price moved is by actually being the one to, uh, who traded when the price moved. And so market making fairly tight on all the products uh, is actually fairly important from this perspective because it's often like the only way to be the first one in the world to know that like the price of XRP moves up a tick. And if you know which exchanges like on average are the leaders for these big moves, uh, it can be like quite important to, if you know that, then you're able to like combine these two pieces of information and know like, oh, XRP is probably going to move on all the other exchanges too, or it's probably not. And I should like be pretty excited to sell more into it. So yeah, this is like the kind of trading that we're doing all the time. Like most of our trading is automated, as you can guess from that description of it. In terms of an example of that, uh, it's kind of hard to give one example. Like it's most of what we're doing in terms of uh, by like number of trades executed, it's most of what we're doing. So I mentioned that we're doing this pretty tight. The really important version of it is uh, we're also doing it like fairly far away from the best bid and offer. One big thing that happens a lot, especially in some of the more important products like the BitMEX perks that I mentioned before is that someone will print like a $50 million order all at once, either intentionally or often unintentionally, uh, because this is the mechanism that the exchange uses to liquidate a big position. It just sort of sends a market order. And so like making markets really far away from the best bid and offer, usually like you almost never trade, like you maybe trade once a week on these quotes. But like if I'm doing it 5% away, and I trade once a week, and I'm like pretty confident that if I do trade, then like the market's going to revert immediately, because like this person didn't actually want to trade 5% down, they were forced to. So probably the market's not going to move 5% down as a result of this. But like, if, I get, if I'm the one who gets to buy it 5% down, that's incredible. Uh, if like the rest of the markets aren't going to follow. 
So that's the kind of thing that we're doing all the time. Like I said, it trades like really infrequently, but it's quite good when it does. And so it's worth the capital. So yeah, that's like one category of our trading are like 24-7 automated market making. And uh, in terms of how much capital we're using for it, and like probably like 10% of our capital is tied up in it at a given time. But most of that is like orders that we're aware probably are not going to trade, uh, but like sometimes will. So it's not like if we desperately needed it, we could turn some of this off. Something else that we do a lot is uh, put on uh, like basically delta neutral and therefore like basically delta neutral spreads between two products. So like an example of this would be like the Bitcoin perpetuals on Binance are trading super rich to their spot index. Then we might get really short these Bitcoin perpetuals on Binance and buy a bunch of spot. And this is riskless if you trust that Binance A is like a legitimate exchange and like the money that you have there is real and they're not going to take it. And B, that their index is that they're like correct about their index and the funding is going to be paid out correctly. Both of which are like pretty robust at this point. It would be quite a surprise for Binance to not be legitimate given how much volume is traded, given how like the extent to which their customers have been able to trust them in the past. And given the regulatory environment, it's like pretty unlikely the Binance is not legitimate and their index is like well-defined and they've never deviated. So it's basically a riskless trade when you put these spreads on and we're doing this pretty big size like across every exchange and every product all the time depending on so like uh during the period from november to january when bitcoin was climbing from 20 to 50k the rally was led uh, by these perpetual swaps and the, they got very very rich like they were paying like 50 bips or something a day at various points from longs to shorts and when something like that's going on we put a ton of our capital into these spreads maybe like depending on how you like measure it like maybe like 20 or 25 percent of our working capital would be used would tied up in these spreads all the time uh, when that was going on in a more normal environment like right now spread like futures are still rich but not as rich or maybe using five or ten percent of our capital on that yeah that's another category we're also doing like that sort of uh, is the extent of our delta neutral trading which is most of what we do we don't tend to be like we're not a desk that like puts all of our money into buying XRP because we like think it's going to go up. Uh, that's not the kind of thing we tend to think we have an advantage in doing. Occasionally we do, like especially on shorter timescales. So I mentioned this effect before where uh, Bitcoin, like because of like how levered up people can get, if like Bitcoin's been going up for a while because futures are really rich and people are buying them really aggressively, and then it goes back down a little bit, often you'll see it go down even more because people who got long like maybe 100x levered, for instance, are going to get their long positions liquidated because they lost a bit and like all their collateral got eaten up. And so it's going to keep going down. And so often what we see is that if Bitcoin has been going up, for instance, and it like gets like X percent away from its max, especially uh, if you're watching like the open interest, like for these products go up as Bitcoin's going up and like these are public numbers, then we'll like put on a giant short position, like expecting a ton of liquidations to happen. Like our systems are such that we can like we tend to be able to put on pretty big positions pretty fast without having a ton of impact. It's because like we're we've optimized our systems and we are on every single market. And so these tend to be quite good. And you can sort of like get them off pretty quickly. And the move that we expect to happen on average, like if it's going to happen, will happen within like six hours when we do this. So usually we're not doing this. Like usually we don't think we have an edge in delta bets. But for instance, the Thanksgiving move for people who are, uh, weren't aware, like Bitcoin was like sort of getting really close to 20k. For a while before it actually got through it and that was happening around thanksgiving it got close to 20k then and then it fell five percent or so and then it fell to 16k like very very fast and this is something that was like pretty predictable if you were watching these numbers that i described before and it's something that alameda 
like did do for a fairly large amount of size. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that's like the gist of the kinds of trades that we do, or the kind of categories of trades that we do. There's also like random idiosyncratic things. Recently, for instance, like Elon Musk has been tweeting about Dogecoin a lot. Dogecoin is like a random, mostly unimportant coin that became important because Elon Musk decided it was his favorite thing in the world. So like we devote some capital at this point to like, if Elon Musk tweets again about Doge, we should buy it within the next 10 seconds if we can. And we just have some capital sitting around waiting to do this. Uh, and we have like a number of like idiosyncratic things like that going on all the time. But yeah, I couldn't really describe how much of our portfolio is doing it. It uh, can be a lot uh, in the rare times when it's good too, but most of the time it's not. <laughs> in your description of all those different types of trades, I sort of mentally categorize it as there are trades that seem to be available because of the way in which crypto markets are perhaps decentralized and dislocated. And there are trades that seem to exist because of the way people are behaving. You sort of alluded to almost like that retail impulse and demand for leverage driving up how rich the futures or perpetuals are trading. Do you think there's ultimately more edge in understanding the way the markets function or the way people function? Yeah, I'd say that like on a typical day when nothing sort of weird is going on, it's really important to understand how different products work, how the exchanges work, and on some level, yeah, like how the markets work. What I mean by nothing weird is going on, I mean like there's not some random altcoin that's moving 50% because of something like an Elon Musk tweet or an SEC action or something like that. And Bitcoin's not like in the middle of doubling, which again is like a, a pretty, like a globally quite strange thing to happen. On like an average day, like nothing huge happened today, for instance. Like it was a fairly typical day. Bitcoin did move 5%, but at this point, that's normal. Like Alameda was not thinking about any like particular like people driven sort of anything like weird, like trying to predict like how people work or how people think. It was all understanding like, oh, like we should put this spread on because this index is different than this one or these two products have funding at different times. And so like there's some exploit we can do. Like most days are like that. Most days are, it's important to understand how the products work, understand what the status of like, oh, these markets are more important. These markets move faster. These markets follow these markets. That tends to be what's most important. On the most important days, I'd say, uh, when something really weird is happening, we tend to try and use our intuition about how people are thinking a lot more. And on the weird days when there's a ton of money to make, understanding how people work is the most important. Uh, yeah, so like on Thanksgiving, it was most important to understand like these Premia are like the biggest we've ever seen on some level. They are coinciding with Bitcoin going up. That means people are like probably uh, using this leverage that they can use. And probably if it goes down, it's going to go down a lot. And that's not something that we had data on. We couldn't run a study on that to predict it. It had never happened before. We were really just using our intuition about how people think. Yeah, so we're always trying to figure out uh, spots where we can do that. It doesn't always work. Like I'm not saying we're perfect or anything, so we don't always know that there's something that we could have been doing along these lines. But we find that there's pre it's pretty rare that we have an opportunity like that. But when there is one, it matters quite a bit. So in terms of which matters more, literally on average, I don't know. On a median day, like understanding the markets, but on some of the biggest days, it's understanding people. You mentioned the example of Elon Musk tweeting about Dogecoin, and it's sort of one of these interesting, fun, maybe idiosyncratic trades. I'm curious about how trades like that and maybe some of the other trades you put on, what's sort of like the half-life of that trading idea? Is that something that gets picked up really quickly and maybe the first time it works, the second time you make a little profit and the third time it's everyone's quick to the game? 
Yeah, so for a super idiosyncratic thing like that, so like uh, that's a particular case where like the first time it happened, maybe Dogecoin took like a minute or so to start rallying a lot. And then like the story then becomes, oh, Elon Musk tweeted and Dogecoin went up. Like that makes sense. Like we didn't know a priori how much it was going to go up, but it like makes sense that it would go up. Then the second time it happens, people already knew about that. And they see Elon Musk tweet about Dogecoin again. And it happens much faster the second time, like you alluded to. And it still happens. Like people are expecting it to happen. And so they buy it. And like if people are buying it, it does go up. So it does happen. But yeah, it happens much faster. Uh, and the sort of whole effect where it like goes up and then it goes back down after that. Like it happens like, yeah, way faster. By the fifth or sixth time it, this is going on, there's a certain amount of fatigue around it. Like each time it's gone up, it's like kind of gone back down, like at least somewhat uh, afterward. And it happened faster and faster each time. Yeah, so it sort of just decays away. I think the most recent time he tweeted, it still went up, but like kind of barely, and then it went right back down. So yeah, and like that probably happened over the course of a week or two, this like entire cycle. Yeah, so for these idiosyncratic things, yeah, where like the market is able to figure it out, yeah, it's like kind of goes away pretty fast. And another key feature of why it can go away fast there is that like Dogecoin really is not a coin anyone cares about. On a day where this isn't happening, it does not have that much volume, maybe like 30 or $40 million or something. I don't actually know, uh, but something fairly small uh, in the grand scheme of things in crypto. There just isn't a ton of liquidity where, and there isn't a ton of people who actually like care about this. For something bigger, like that involves like a ton more liquidity in the entire market, like these spreads in like Bitcoin futures that you can put on. That's been going on for years and like hasn't gone away. Uh, it sort of ebbs and flows depending on how much volatility the market's got at a given time. But Alameda has been putting on these future spreads uh, for the entirety of its existence and still has them on literally right now. Don't see that going away soon. So the half-life of something like that is apparently years at least. And yeah, I'd say that it really just depends on like how sort of silly the trade is uh, and also how much volume actually exists to put it on. So in, in your background in the intro, you talked about what I have to guess is probably the trade that was the easiest alpha you've ever learned with just a U.S. spot trade on U.S. exchanges. I'm curious to know, what do you think the hardest alpha you've ever earned is? Uh, yeah, so there's like a bunch of things that, that were a uh, decent amount harder than that. One kind of cool example, I think, that is sort of analogous to the U.S. spot exchange thing, but ultimately was like quite a bit harder, is sort of a similar thing where, except the ARB, instead of being between two U.S. exchanges, was between Japanese spot exchanges and US spot exchanges. So for a while, there was this like pretty well-known trade or like theoretical trade on some level, because like if you just compare the price of USD and yen, you could see that like the Japanese Bitcoin markets were trading like percents away from the US Bitcoin markets. And this persisted for like not hours, but like months. And it sort of became like a myth almost like oh like yes it's like an arb you can do but apparently no one can actually do it uh, because if someone could be doing this then the arb would be closing and that was like mostly true except that alameda was able to do it after uh, some amount of work so the difficulty here was not identifying oh there's a great trade maybe like we can see the prices are different uh, it was an actually in the operational hassle of getting all this done the steps here were basically you have to have a u.s bank account that sounds easy but it's actually not that easy because if this was like in 2017 when banks would sort of just like the second they find out you're involved in crypto, they cut ties with you. So you have to like keep getting new bank accounts if you want to keep doing this. So you have to have a U.S. bank account and you have to hook it up to one of the U.S. exchanges. And so like say you buy Bitcoin on uh, Coinbase, like after sending dollars there, then you have to send the Bitcoins to the Japanese exchange. That's easy. That's just a blockchain transfer. 
you have to sell them on the Japanese exchange. You have to transfer that yen to a Japanese bank account. The Japanese banks have the same difficulty as the US banks. They mostly did not have any interest in transacting in crypto. They still don't. Uh, like I'm talking about like uh, that part was in the past, but the like getting banking for crypto companies is still basically impossible in both these countries today. There's a few banks that do it. And then you had to transfer the yen to the US and convert it to USD. And that part is not that hard, but like these banks, like this is sort of uh, one thing that raises flags in the banking systems that which like might eventually lead them to figure out what's going on. And also like if you want to be doing this every day, there are some like random like timing restrictions. Like it takes time to do all these transfers and it takes a lot of time to transfer from Japan to the US. And it turned out that the only way to do the cycle once per day was to have a guy sitting in the Japanese bank the second it opened, making them process it immediately and like prodding them at every step because otherwise it would take like just a little too long to do the cycle in one day, you'd, you'd, you'd need two. And each of these operational steps was like fairly hard to figure out, it turned out. And like actually being willing to do it and like being willing to A, even try, not be scared off by, oh, no one's doing this, obviously, the thread wouldn't exist if they were. And then actually like figuring out each step, not getting stuck on one of them, which like we know a lot of people did. And just following through uh, is something that like doesn't sound like it should be hard, but was uh, pretty hard. And it's something that we, like we haven't really had anything quite like that in, in a while, but uh, being willing to like actually understand all the the nitty gritty of the way that various crypto exchanges work, various like banking systems work, and like everything in between is something that we are quite good at at this point, and gives us a lot of advantages. So Alameda is a primary market maker on FTX, which for listeners who don't know is currently the fourth largest exchange by volume, I think, and was actually started by a team at Alameda that sort of overlaps with you guys. What challenges has that presented to you? And what has it actually taught the team about trading? Yeah, market making on FTX has been one of our biggest challenges ever, I'd say. So like you mentioned, uh, the like the team that started, like Sam Beckman-Fried started both. Uh, there's a lot of overlapping like interests here. So from day one, uh, we were like making super liquid markets on FTX and like in every product that FTX listed, uh, which like from day one, again, was all the big ones. And our goal from day one is have the most liquid Bitcoin market in the world, for instance. Not the highest volume, obviously, because like on day one, we had zero volume. But like have the liquidity there from day one as a means of getting more people to join, to want to come to FTX and trade there. And so, yeah, that was sort of Alameda's mandate in starting to market make there. And it's quite a big challenge. It's something we didn't really realize when we started doing it. When you're literally just like providing more liquidity than exists on any other market in the world, it's really like if you're screwing anything up, it's trivial to like just take a ton of money from your trading systems that are like automatically doing this all the time. And like there's a few reasons for that. So I mentioned a few times now uh, that some markets are more important than others in terms of understanding like, oh, like let's use uh, like just BitMEX and Binance again as examples. At this point, uh, Binance is a more important market in this regard than BitMEX. And what that means is that if like more permanent price moves uh, happen first on Binance than they do on BitMEX. So typically, if you see the price on Binance like get a bit higher than BitMEX temporarily, or like in like a given instant, then we can expect on average BitMEX will follow, which is like less true in the other direction. So like let's say that like Alameda is like trying to provide the most liquid market in the world on FTX and is screwing this up, and we don't realize Binance matters the most. Then like when we're building our models. We might be underweighting Binance and getting picked off every time there's a 
like a move happens first on Binance. If we're not like doing a ton of studies on this, and also if we're not like guaranteeing that we have the best possible data on this, then we can just really easily be hemorrhaging money every time the market moves on Binance. And this is the kind of thing we were doing at, uh, at the start. Uh, we were like, we had thought about like variants of this, but we like, we're missing a few important markets uh, in a few cases. In a few cases, we like, we had bad data as it turned out. And yeah, that's the kind of thing that uh, trying to market make for like giant size, pretty tight, uh, is just like really apt to teach you pretty fast. Or it's apt to teach you that you have some problem at least pretty fast. Uh, and yeah, so like every time we started losing, like like we ran a lot of studies like, oh, like our, here are the segments of our trading that are losing the most money. Let's dig into these today. And we did a lot of like studies on our models. Our dev team did a lot of like audits of our data input structures and like our other things that are in our databases that I only kind of understand. And uh, yeah, like over the first few months of this process, we were not profitable trading uh, for the most part, but it taught us a ton about like which exchanges matter, how do we like robustly have like take in what matters all the time. And like being 24 seven at this point, like crypto is 24 seven. And so we usually had someone manning our trading systems before this, but we didn't like optimize for it exactly. This is the first time we like really cared about always having like really, really good quotes all the time. And like having zero downtime is like not something any of us were used to. And figuring out like a way to do it was another big challenge for us. Because like, let's say we need, wanted to do like an upgrade to our systems that would take half an hour. Before we could like, just take our trading now for half an hour. And this was the first time we couldn't. And yeah, figuring out like, how do we even have quotes if our database needs to be down for half an hour? Like, what are we supposed to do with that? That was a difficult challenge to solve that we eventually did. But yeah, there's like all these unexpected things that happen. Like when you like decide you want to care about your quotes all the time. And uh, for the first few months, it kind of sucked, not going to lie. <laughs> but uh, we, we figured it out and it's like pretty chill now. <laughs> so I want to pivot a little bit to talking about some of the operational aspects of running a crypto fund that might be different than running a fund in traditional markets. And one of the things that comes to mind to me very quickly is that on-chain transactions are just notoriously slow and even potentially rather expensive. How do you think about managing this issue of sort of block time versus clock time when it comes to your collateral and moving money across exchanges? Yeah, it's a decently big challenge. And it's a lot more of what we think about than like, I think a lot of people would guess. So I mentioned before that the lack of centralization uh, is a big defining feature of the crypto markets. And if I want to be trading on two exchanges, I need to have collateral in two different places at the same time. And yeah, they're not directly fungible with each other. Binance and BitMEX do not talk. Like I can't put on a huge position on Binance if all my collateral is on BitMEX and tell them like, oh, like, yeah, like it's there. Trust me. Like if I really need to give it to you, it can be there in an hour. Like they don't trust that. You have to actually have it. So that makes the like actual allocation of capital a really important problem uh, that we have spent a lot of time thinking about like getting our automated systems to understand, but which ultimately is a big reason that I think that we'll never be able to be confident that our systems are like actually working well. It's like humans are like super involved in this process still for us uh, right now. Like one toy example that you can use to think about it is let's say that like the Binance uh, XRP, like some Binance XRP product uh, is really rich and an identical product on uh, BitMEX is really cheap. A great trade then is get long the product on BitMEX and get short the product on Binance. But I need to collateralize both of these. So I'm going to like have like a bunch of collateral sitting on both BitMEX and Binance, and I'm going to get long against that collateral 
on BitMEX short on Binance. If XRP then like tanks for some reason, like it goes down like 30% in a day, and maybe I'm 5x levered, that means that my long position is going to get liquidated. This is not a riskless position at all. I have to, like, because of the collateral requirement and potential, like, for the position to get uh, wiped away without my desire for it to be. So if this happens, I have to get collateral onto BitMEX uh, ASAP, especially if the move is fast, which it, it can be in crypto. Uh, sometimes these, like, even for the giant products, they'll move 30% in a few minutes. So yeah, so like at that point, I need to like get cl more collateral onto BitMEX like before the moves finished happening or else I'm going to get screwed and this position will have lost me a lot of money. So XRP in particular is a product that actually has fairly fast transfer times. And often on these exchanges, uh, the way to collateralize a position in a future with underlying, with a given underlying is you have to have spot of that exact underlying. And so if we're talking about XRP, then I will be able to get collateral there fairly fast. And so I can't afford to be like kind of risky with these things as long as I have XRP somewhere. Like if we're talking about Bitcoin though, Bitcoin takes like an hour to transfer between two different places. So if I think there's like propensity for Bitcoin to move 30% in like less than an hour, then I can't get 5X levered. Like I can't put these spreads on for as big as I might want to and as big as I might be able to in XRP. And yeah, so this is like something that literally does impact like the kinds of bets we can make, how big we can make them. And it allows for bigger bets in something like XRP uh, than in something like Bitcoin. Yeah, and like for what it's worth, usually this isn't like, this is like a big consideration for us. Like, where's our capital? Like, are we out of capital like on Exchange X? Like, does that mean we like need to get more there? Is it worth it? Is our position too big or like things like that? So like we're thinking about this all the time. It sometimes matters more than others. And it turns out that uh, on the days when crypto is the most volatile, like we can uh, talk about March 12, 2020 again, when crypto fell 50% or like more than 50%. When crypto is moving a lot, people are also trying to do way more transfers than usual. And on some level, blockchains are really just like databases. And when there's a lot of activity on them, they get slower. And transfers were taking forever on March 12th. And this was a big contributor to like why uh, crypto like went so wild on March 12th. Not only were people's positions getting liquidated, but they were unable to get any collateral onto the exchanges to stop it from happening which sort of like made it happen much, much faster than it would have otherwise and allowed for like these liquidation cascades to happen uh, to a much greater degree than they would have if people could just like have collateral where they want at will and instantly. I think Bitcoin was taking six hours to transfer. And like you mentioned, uh, these transfers can also get quite expensive when this is going on. I forget what the costs of the transfers were on that day, but it was like sky high. Recently, Ethereum, well, Ethereum is like the second biggest crypto uh, currency right now. Last week, I think their fees like got to their all-time high, uh, to the point where FTX, uh, which uh, typically ha uh, like eats transfer fees for customers, they had to stop doing that for Ethereum. I forget what the exact thing that happened was, but like because of like of various exchanges, like either like stopped Ethereum transfers or uh, had to like charge more for them, or like they took way longer or something like that on every exchange, which yeah, like dictates the kinds of things you can do in in an Ethereum future that requires Ethereum as collateral. And so, yeah, like actually monitoring these things uh, and tracking, like, oh, like our transfer is better or worse than average, like tells you if you can put on a bigger position than average or not, like in all the underlyings. And yeah, it's a fairly interesting problem that is quite unique to crypto. <laughs> One of the things that really amazes me about the crypto space is how rapidly it seems to evolve. There's new exchanges, new contracts, new specifications, new coins that emerge regularly. How does the speed at which this all happens, the evolution of the space provide both an opportunity and a challenge to you? 
Uh, yeah, uh, it's definitely both. <laughs> uh, so recently, like everyone knows, like Bitcoin, Ethereum, those are like fairly well known at this point. The big craze in the past six months has been a uh, DeFi coins. So DeFi is short for decentralized finance. All these new platforms keep popping up. Each one has its own token. The platforms offer like various kinds of opportunities. Uh, one big one is are like borrow lending uh, platforms where I can like park a bunch of my capital on their platform and other people can borrow it. And like my reward for doing this is like interest of, like paid for it like often uh, with the like the platform's own token. And these tokens like keep like, I mean, the platforms themselves offer like often pretty good opportunities, like the actual like parking capital there referred to as farming, uh, like is often like quite good and often the best thing to do with your capital uh, as it turns out. But even like beyond that, like ignoring the actual platforms for a second, which like, again, is not correct to do. Alameda does use these platforms. Uh, but the coins themselves like have just been like really, really volatile. And FTX has listed a bunch of them. Uh, so even if Alameda didn't want to, Alameda would be focusing on them to some extent and figuring out like, oh, like what drives the prices of these weird products that like didn't exist last week and now have billion dollar valuations, which I, like really does happen like every few days at this point. Uh, I'll come in and some coin I hadn't heard of the day before literally will have a billion dollar valuation and we'll be market making it having to figure out like, oh, like which markets are important for this? Like what new data thing do we have to be scraping to get this right? Yeah, like actually staying on top of all this is like very difficult and something that we spend a lot of time on even understanding which coins are like likely to start mattering is something we spend a lot of time on. We've had to like spend a lot more time on social media to understand like what's become popular just to make sure we don't miss anything. And even like social media for in languages we don't actually speak uh, has been something that we've had to figure out how to be aware of. And yeah, beyond that, like as all these new, even just coins start existing, uh, there's also new contracts on them that we have to understand because sometimes the most important product for uh, some new DeFi coin might be the Binance perp on it uh, that has an index of that like uses as its index a price on an exchange that we're not using that would take us like some time to get onto because uh, like we have limited dev resources and like how do we price this like it's actually like sometimes these things are like fairly difficult for us to figure out and we likely are not doing the best things on average in these cases but there's just so much to be doing all the time that yeah like figuring out like a way to get it like kind of right such that we're not losing money on it is like the best we can do. And yeah, the increasing number of these like coins and also products on these coins uh, has presented a ton of challenges. Uh, but yeah, like you said, there's also lots of opportunity. Many of these farming projects, just to keep using that as an example, uh, have been quite good for us. Like sometimes you'll be making percents per day uh, on some project that that you figure out is that good just by like spending two hours reading its like reading its entire code base or something, because like they do tend to have public code bases and. That's something like maybe a few people in the world both A, know to be looking for and B, know how to do. And like that's just the kind of opportunity that we get to have because we have both of those things. And so yeah, like there's a ton of new stuff all the time, uh, which is hard, but also keeps us busy. And it's the kind of thing we're at this point pretty good at finding and uh, exploiting. So it's been, it's been quite good for us. <laughs> One of the new things that seems to be happening at an accelerating rate we've seen this in the news over the last six to nine months, is an increasing adoption among institutional investors. So not only seeing crypto show up on the balance sheet of corporations, but we're also seeing the launch of products like we just saw a launch of ETFs in Canada, providing retail easier access to crypto in an exchange traded fund. How do you think that that's going to change the opportunity set for you? Yeah. So I think that there's a few possible effects here. One, like as more of these like big firms and like 
banks, big companies, whatever, uh, start putting on these big crypto positions, that'll just tend to increase volume across the board. And even if the volume is like restricted to certain parts of like certain exchanges, certain like sets of liquidity, like maybe they can only use US exchanges or maybe they can only like buy it OTC from a US OTC desk. That does still drive volume everywhere, even on like the Asian exchanges, like the futures exchanges, whatever, because like people still like if the price goes up on the US spot exchanges, like the prices will like follow it on the futures exchanges that use those as indices, for instance. So that's just sort of how that has to work. And if it's OTC desks, they like don't tend to put on risk long term. So they have to de-risk and they'll do that by getting like covering that short they put on on the Asian exchanges that they're allowed to use or like that they're that like another of their entities is allowed to use. So yeah, like these things just tend to drive volume globally, not just in the US. Like that's just like pretending that the only US or the only institutional adoption will be in the US, which like that's been the narrative so far, but like if it continues, probably it'll be global as well. Yeah, so that's one effect, and that's like a positive effect on a lot of levels. There's also potential for more regulatory action uh, to be taken. So, for instance, in December, like we saw the SEC uh, release various anti-XRP statements, like pursuing a lawsuit against the Ripple Foundation, and like XRP itself and a few other coins that were seen as like tied to XRP on some level got hit quite a bit on this. And like Coinbase and like some other U.S. exchanges delisted XRP. So yeah, like this is like what the kind of effect you can see from being a potential result of institutional adoption uh, is more kinds of regulation like this. At this point, it's like pretty unlikely to affect coins like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, and like a bunch of others that like, for instance, Grayscale has created ETFs for or indicated that they plan to. And like a decent proxy is like, oh, like is Coinbase currently okay with listing Coin X? That probably means they've checked with like a bunch of lawyers who understand this landscape like those coins are probably going to be fine. As more and more like banks and like big companies in the US start getting into this, we'll probably like see the cycle of regulation get sped up a decent amount. We'll also probably see more derivatives in the US uh, get listed. So I mentioned that like there's huge leverage available to traders on Asian exchanges. That's way less true in the US right now. Most trading is spot, uh, most, and there's only like, like there are futures that are available, but like really not that many. And that's the kind of thing that I think we will see more and more of as like the US actually like okay specific ones. Because like the reason that most US exchanges don't have them is they're terrified of the US uh, like coming and banning them and going after them. But with regulation will come like some that are approved, which will be good. And this can happen in uh, other countries too. Like Chinese regulation is something that I think will be pretty interesting as it evolves. And there can be like positive and negative effects on crypto from these things. And we'll have to see which dominate. <laughs> are there any tactics that you guys take in terms of managing all this regulatory risk? Because what strikes me about what's so unique with the decentralized market that exists is you're dealing with a lot of different regulatory regimes. And the decisions that might be taken by securities regulators in the US could be very different than those taken by similar regulators in China or Germany, and that can have profound impacts on both those sort of local exchanges as well as the ecosystem as a whole. So how do you think about navigating those regulatory risks? Yeah, so I mean, that's the kind of thing that we've thought about like at every stage of our existence. And every day uh, we think about like, oh, like, is it okay that we have money on this exchange? Like, is it too big of a risk? So one thing that we're always doing is like, even our automated systems have like max capital that we're allowed to have on a given exchange or a given platform. And that's a reflection of the idea that like on a given day we're making like 
15 bips or something uh, on average uh, by having our capital on this exchange. But if every day there's also a fit, like a like a half a percent risk that the country where this exchange exists like seizes all the funds that the exchange has because they've banned crypto, like suddenly it's bad for us to have capital there. And yeah, so like we're we try and stay apprised of the regulatory landscape in all these places. And like we have like contacts who are pretty aware of these things, like lawyers, people like that, who we believe are like basically the best people in the world at understanding the situation. And yeah, like we've made decisions uh, as a result of understanding that we've gained from those things in terms of like, oh, we have to get capital off this exchange ASAP. And that's a rare kind of decision that we make, but it is the kind of thing we have done. And that's a little more general than just regulatory risk, but uh, like the potential problems with regulation in China are like something that we have thought about in the, pretty explicitly in the past. Yeah, I, I, that's like the main way in which we think about it. We don't do a ton of thinking about like, like we don't like make Delta bets, for instance, based on uh, like we think that the chances of like bad regulatory news from country X are like high enough that we should get short Bitcoin. Like we don't really do things like that, but we do like uh, have risk limits in place for ourselves just like, cause like sometimes it can be like pretty tempting to put all of our capital on, into this like really, really good spread that involves this risky exchange, but we don't let ourselves. So one of the ghosts that really seems to haunt crypto, at least from a perception perspective was the Mt. Gox hack. And there is still this sort of common perception that your coins are not safe necessarily on an exchange, on a hot wallet, that they're at risk from being hacked. Obviously, you guys have a lot of capital at risk. Talk to me a little bit about custody, exchange risk, and just generally safeguarding assets. Yeah. So at this point, so I mentioned that there are 20 important exchanges I mean, there's a few ways in which uh, those 20 have defi- have like sort of defined themselves as more important than the others. Uh, one of them is sort of just having volume, because if you don't have volume, then you can't matter. But another thing, and one that leads directly to them having volume, is that they have sort of had, like at this point, pretty robust histories of not having anything like that happen. Or at least if they did have something like that happen in like 2015, they've revamped their systems in a pretty public way dem- and demonstrated that they have like much better safety in place. So... Like we're never 100% sure uh, that any given platform is safe in this regard. That would be literal 100%. That's impossible. So we do like we are assigning some risk of this kind of exposure being bad to any given platform where we have capital, and that's uh, what dictates the max capital we're allowed to put there by our own rules. But for the most part, like these 20 exchanges that where we're like willing to place anything have like publicly documented uh, the kinds of safety measures they put in place in order to safeguard their funds. They're keeping some amount of their money in cold wallets uh, versus hot wallets, which are I actually don't, I'm not sure how well defined that system is. Uh, but like in general, they're like keeping their money in wallets that they're not touching day to day that are actually fairly difficult to access for various reasons, either because you need like multiple people or like multiple kinds of keys that are kept in different places that are hard to access all at once uh, in order to access them or like some systems like that. And in general, they've like undergone like security audits. That like make it at least like quite unlikely that they're actually at risk of any like a hack or like any important security exposure. And yeah, this is the kind of thing where like if a new exchange pops up and they've said nothing about their security, they've not demonstrated anything, and they've also like not had any history that demonstrates it's pretty unlikely that they can be hacked. We're not going to trust them. We're not going to give them anything. But if they've gone five years after posting their policy about like this is how we keep our money safe and they've had no problems, then like we're just going to trust them. We're making enough money on an average day that it's like a positive expected value trade 
to keep money there. And yeah, on some level, that's the real safeguard that we use. Let's say that we like are actually making 10 bips a day trading on an exchange. A thousand days later, we'll have made up all our capital. If the risk is on a given day of losing the money is less than one in a thousand, then we should just do it, even if we like know that there's actually some risk. But yeah, so like we think about these things all the time. Our systems think about them too. And yeah, we are pretty safe about it. Well, Sam, I know this has been an enlightening conversation for me, and I suspect for many of my listeners who haven't necessarily taken a dive into this space. So I can't thank you enough for your time. I really appreciate you spending it with us. Yeah, it was a fun conversation for me too. If you're enjoying the season, please consider heading over to your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a rating or review and sharing us with friends or on social media. It helps new people find us and helps us grow. Finally, if you'd like to learn more about newfound research, our investment mandates, mutual funds, or associated ETFs, please visit thinknewfound.com. And now welcome back to my ongoing conversation with Harley Bassman. Options, there are a lot of degrees of freedom to keep in mind when you're entering a trade. There's the instrument you're looking to trade, the tenor, the strike. You could even talk about the structure of the trade. For investors who are pursuing long convexity positions, are there certain best practices that they should keep in mind or perhaps definitive potholes that they should avoid? There are a few tricks which can be bothersome for short-dated options could be a large dividend coming up. There could be some of the various outcomes that's difficult. There could be hidden call features and securities that are problematic. But options in general, what I would say is this goes for anything that I'm investing in, is that sizing is more important than entry level. Clearly, if you pay a high price or sell a low price, that's bad. But let's ignore that. Let's just talk about that we're dealing in relatively liquid, fair markets where things are fairly priced. If you want to go in there and allocate assets, allocate money for a risk, you have to ask yourself, what am I trying to accomplish? And what is my time horizon? And how can I be structured? I can hold this trade for the fullness of time until I get to where I want to be. Sizing it large enough where it'll make a difference, small enough so it won't get blown out. I think what happens with people in a lot of these convex trades is that they really haven't thought through ex ante, what is my risk profile? How much am I willing to make before I sell? How much am I willing to lose? And when they get these trades on too big, they tend to make a mistake. They get stopped out. If you look back to the COVID March wipeout last year, what really happened there? If you had just gone to sleep, gone to Mars in January and come back now, you probably won. What really happened was we went down and people got stopped out or they got scared or they got whatever. Once again, not to pitch our product too much, but this is why you want to own simplify products. Because by owning the embedded optionality in these products, it allows you to go and not get scared or stopped out of a good idea by short-term local volatility. Now, is COVID a short-term local volatility? I think that's kind of pressing the definition, but yeah, it kind of is. And so to the extent that you have protection on both sides, you're all right. To the extent that you have a plan that you can live with, you're all right. So I think what happens is people might do an option or a convexity trade with a certain horizon, 
but they haven't really thought through the path dependency to get to that horizon and they make a mistake along the way. So I think going to the bar, having a beer and kind of thinking a little more closely about what you're doing is probably a better idea than just picking up your app and uh, trading a Robinhood option. Mm-hmm.